the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Opposition MPs in Ottawa continue to ask questions of the federal Liberal government's activities around the SNC-Lavalin affair. On Tuesday, Conservative MP Peter Kent asked the Ethics Committee to open a new investigation. They're hoping to hear the full story from former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould and former Treasury Board President Jane Philpott without any restrictions imposed by the government. The latest twist to the tale this week was a leak to two media outlets that Wilson-Raybould and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau clashed over her choice for the Chief Justice appointment. Libby Snymer spoke with Conservative MPs Pierre Poliev and Peter Kent, as well as NDP MP Brian Massey. Apparently the Prime Minister's team leaked out a story that the real reason that they removed Jody Wilson-Raybould as Attorney General is because uh, she recommended uh, for the chief uh, of the Supreme Court uh, someone who wasn't liberal enough. Um, We find that uh, to be troubling for two reasons. One, uh, discussions between prime ministers and attorneys general about judicial appointments are supposed to be confidential. Uh, This leak breaks that confidentiality. Second, uh, they're, they're supposed to be apolitical. So the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, shouldn't be punishing his attorney general because uh, she wants to appoint someone to the court who's not as liberal as him. So those two things um, represent uh, violations uh, of the uh, standards of uh, judicial independence, and we want, we want it investigated. Justin Trudeau has now shut down two investigations into his SNC-Lavalin scandal. Uh, that's a lot of effort for someone who has, says he has nothing to hide. We're going to bring in now Peter Kent, who is the Conservative MP for Thornhill. The the, the Liberal caucus is increasingly divided. Many of them are worrying about their prospects for re-election. But many of them, they don't know what the Prime Minister's covering up. They do know that with two cabinet ministers having resigned, the the clerk of the Privy Council having resigned, and uh, Mr. uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's brain trust... uh, his principal secretary, Gerald Butts, having resigned, there must be something very big that he is trying to prevent Ms. Wilson-Raybould from saying. I'm going to bring in your colleague, Brian Massey, from the NDP. What do you say to the liberal Nathaniel Erskine-Smith's reasons for not supporting an ethics committee investigation, and and how do you see all of that? To me, I I think that, um, you know, it would be nice to say that this is a new, um, uh, 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 I guess, attempt to to uh, I don't know, get something done. But the reality is, is what it does, it allows them to to kind of skate on one direction and then you know do their heart, do the other the other work uh, that that what people want to see fixed uh, get ignored. There's also all these rumors that the the Liberal caucus may get rid of the two ministers who resigned. Uh, would that be a good outcome in your opinion? And uh, do you think it's going to happen? Well, that's for the caucus to decide, uh, but I think that uh, Canadians will get a chance to uh, get rid of this government uh, in October or perhaps sooner. This is a huge scandal that the that the Prime Minister uh, is using. Uh, he's expending incredible energy to keep this covered up. Um, and I think that uh, 
It is in the public interest. It's in the national interest. This scandal is deepening by the day, and the prime minister has the control with a, with a simple signature. He can extend the waiver of uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould and Ms. Philpott to speak, to say what they have to say. The Ethics Committee continues to uh, stand ready to, uh, to hear them in a, in a civil and in parliamentary terms, a safe place for them to give their testimony. Brian Massey, what would you like to leave us with? Where do you see it going from here? This gets to a core uh, control of Canada with regards to uh, SNC-Lavalin being the kind of the um, example of a law put in place um, without oversight that allows criminality to become uh, normalized behavior or you buy yourself out of that situation. And that's really what we're talking about with a change in Canadian law. How is it there is such much this much of an influence and what is really behind um, you know, the, even things where the prime minister invents uh, job losses uh, to try to protect the corporate interest uh, in criminality and behavior that involves quite sensational uh, allegations. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is public money um, that is at the heart of it and, and a culture of protection that still exists. So the public inquiry is where I still think there's value for that. In the meantime, the ethics committee is uh, certainly doing its job. Uh, trying to bring some accountability with the uh, opportunity that they have. Conservative MPs Pierre Poliev and Peter Kent, along with NDP MP Brian Massey. Fight Back put out requests for Liberal MPs on both the Justice and Ethics Committee, but they declined to come on the show. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. A woman who helped whistleblower Edward Snowden has a new home here in Canada after being granted asylum on Tuesday. Vanessa Rodell and her daughter arrived at Pearson Airport on a flight from Hong Kong Monday night. From the Philippines, the refugees had sought asylum in Hong Kong, but their appeal there was denied before they were accepted in Canada. The mother and daughter plan to settle in Montreal, where they're being sponsored by a nonprofit group. But there are still five other people hoping for a similar fate. Libby spoke with immigration lawyer Giddy Mammon, as well as Guillaume Cliche Ribard, a spokesperson with For the Refugees, which is the advocacy group assisting Rodell. This case originally um, is based on persecution, on gender-based persecution, sexual violence, uh, which uh, the evidence demonstrates clearly that that Philippines has a long story of. And uh, this is why Ms. Rodell left the Philippines uh, first off. And then she lived in, in Hong Kong, where she sheltered at Snowden in 2013. And, and upcoming from them, her life became very difficult. Uh, uh, she has received many pressures from the Hong Kong government and uh, many investigations as to why and how she had helped Snowden. And this had made her life very difficult and, and has raised security issues for her, which led her to apply for refugee status in Canada, which was granted by the Canadian authorities. Giddy, let's bring you in. What do you make of this case? What is going to be very interesting is what happens to the other five. I think one of them is including the father of her daughter. So uh, I, I think that those five individuals really are the ones who should be the focus of our attention because she is now more or less safe here. It's possible that the Americans may try to implicate her in some sort of offense of harboring a fugitive or giving aid or something to a fugitive. But right now, there must be intense pressure being placed by the Americans on the authorities in Hong Kong uh, and even the authorities in the Philippines to see if those those individuals might be uh, perhaps... Uh, 
expelled from Hong Kong quickly to their countries where they may be more vulnerable to um, American pressure. The Americans cannot possibly be happy about these individuals helping uh, Ed Snowden. And uh, frankly, if I was uh, Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau, um, you know, for the uh, minimal cost and extra sort of marginal discomfort we're going to have with respect to our relationships with the United States, I think it's worth pulling out those people as quickly as possible. Is it appropriate for, you know, our government, in effect, to take a stand about whether Edward Snowden is a whistleblower or a traitor who leaked confidential defense? Well, that wouldn't be how the question would be framed. I mean, politically, yes. But the question in front of an officer who's deciding whether or not a person meets a definition of persecution, there is a standard test. It's an objective test, and it's a really, it doesn't really look at, well, what's going to happen to us if we recognize that this person is facing harm. But there is clearly political consequences from all this, whether or not this is a legal process or whether or not they do meet the definition of convention refugee. Uh, there is a real, very real thing that the Americans feel uh, very badly uh, done by uh, Edward Snowden, and I don't think they're going to be too appreciative of their uh, biggest trading partner um, having a hand in protecting those people who gave uh, you know aid and comfort to Ed Snowden. Guillaume, would you say that Hong Kong is particularly vulnerable to the pressure to expel them? Yes, uh, we, we have evidence that demonstrate that they've been expedited the removal proceedings in those cases. I mean, we have evidence that shows as well that Hong Kong has less than 1% rate approval for refugee claimants, which is close to 0%. Uh, we have demonstration that Hong Kong authorities have been quite severe in, in, in uh, cutting assistance for, for Vanessa and Kiana, for example. Uh, there's many, many, many evidence in the file that demonstrate that they're not facing security in Hong Kong and that Hong Kong is doing their best to expel them and remove them as soon as possible. So, yeah, the situation is, is very tense and, and, and very dramatic at this time. If Canada is taking two, I don't see why Canada wouldn't take the seven of them. And I don't see how Canada can can acknowledge or can can live with the fact that the daughter is separated from the father now and, and that the sisters can play together and can, can, can live together. Together. Uh, at this time, I think there's a, a very big humanitarian factor here that Canada needs to assess as well, which adds to the risk to their life and their security. Uh, Giddy Mammon, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I'm, I'm delighted that the lawyers kept this under wraps until she was wheels up in the air uh, with her daughter. Uh, but as I said before, if I was uh, Justin Trudeau at this point, we're already in for two. There's only five left. And I think the uh, the optics of leaving the other five, if you've already acknowledged that these two need some protection, then I, I think it's, it's crazy to leave them sitting out there in the wind uh, for much longer. I think they need to move very quickly. That's immigration lawyer Giddy Mammon and Guillaume Clich-Ribard, a spokesperson with For the Refugees. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Ontario government has released the annual Sunshine List, those public servants earning more than $100,000 a year. The number of employees on the list is up more than 14% over the year before at 151,000. The CEO of the Ontario Power Generation was the top earner, making more than $1.7 million. And two top aides to former Premier Kathleen Wynne shared almost $1 million in pay and severance last year after the Liberals were crushed by the Doug Ford PCs in last spring's election.
Joining Libby to discuss the latest Sunshine List, conservative strategist Jason Leader and John McEtitian, along with NDP MPP Peter Tabbins. You know, every year this this is sort of uh, like watching a car accident. Everybody goes and scrambles to the list and sees how much their former co-workers or the people they've met or have made or whatever. And there's that part, part of it. But there is a political implication to what Ms. Wynne did, um, you know, giving her top team. And remember, this was, you know, the SS no chance campaign going in. You had a ton of staff, volunteers working really hard for essentially no money with essentially no chance to win. They're working from 6 a.m. till midnight uh, every day for months. And the chief of staff, Andrew Bevan, uh, gets a $400,000 severance. Essentially, it's that. He made $150,000 in salary and a $400,000 severance payment. Some of the other top officials as well. And it just sticks in people's cross. But this isn't only an issue amongst conservatives who think maybe government is too big and maybe Kathleen Wynne spent a little bit too much money. But i got to tell you, there's some liberals in my office and in and around uh, Toronto yesterday that were wondering, wait a second, those guys paid themselves all that money and we were all left to die on the vine. So I think they're, listen, this isn't going to be a long-term um, political implication for the Liberals. Number one, Kathleen Wynne is no longer the leader. Number two, uh, it wasn't really in dispute whether or not she was spending too much money or not. I think that's one of the reasons why she lost, lost the election. But I will say it cements her legacy and it's a, uh, for, 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 for a nice person who was not a great premier, it's not a good legacy to, to finish up on. John McCutition, these severances would have been written into their contract, you know, on day one. Am I wrong by thinking that? No, and and it goes to the, uh, it, it points to the bigger issue with the Liberal Party, right? Out of touch, not connected with reality, totally not understanding how government works. It's supposed to be for the people, not for the insiders. And, you know, I mean, it just stinks. And, and I don't think you'll see, uh, will be interesting is, because I agree with Jason that, you know, it's, it's been the same old, same old for 15 years. And I think what you'll see in the next two or three years is a change in that list. And when I say that, uh, we now have a government that's looking at everybody's, uh, paycheck from a different perspective. The way it used to be, uh, which was the norm, it was, how much did you, how much do you want to get paid if you're a friend? And uh, what kind of severance could we give you as a parachute? But the, the, the starting point was always how much did the last person get? We'll pay you more. Whereas Ford's coming from a place of, if you look at the hydro guys, how much do we need to pay somebody? And there ought to be a cap on jobs that are paid for from the taxpayer. So I think uh, the number of people on these lists the, the calculus for it is changing, going to change radically moving forward. We are going to bring in Peter Tabbins from the NDP. He's the energy critic. What do you think of the sunshine list and specifically these eye-popping severances for Kathleen Wynne's top two staffers? Well, I, I think if people are upset with the sunshine list this year, they should wait until next year when all of the, the goodies and rewards that Ford has dished out to his buddies bringing them on the gravy train are going to start showing up. I mean, Libby, you're probably aware of that. Cameron Montgomery got $140,000 salary plus per diems to be the chair of the Education Quality and Accountability Office. The previous person got 5000 a year. We didn't need a full-time person to replace a previous part-time chair. If we've got a problem with the testing, um, that's an issue with the staff, not with the chair. And, and it isn't just that. I mean, the guy Ian Todd 
Ford's campaign tour director, trade representative to Washington, getting 350000 bucks a year. I think he's getting more than the ambassador. Uh, Definitely. This is a very, very generous premier, Doug Ford. If you're a friend of his, you can be sure that he will be kind to you. What is your conclusion on this? Uh, I am thinking that this will serve as a backup and he he's going to be cutting jobs he's also he's already said he's cutting kind of fat cat executive jobs like head of lens so well, yeah i don't believe that i mean he may be cutting those people um but uh he you know if you give someone a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar a year job as a trade rep in washington as your former campaign tour director no you're not cutting things you're making sure that your friends are well taken care of. And I think that will be the big story when the next Sunshine List comes out with the hard black and white print. But Libby, you and I know today from what's already in the press that Ford's friends are being treated very well and people in Ontario are going to resent that. Conservative strategist Jason Leader and John McEtitian, along with NDP MPP Peter Tabbins. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Wait times are little changed over the last two years in this province for priority procedures such as hip and knee replacements, cataract surgery, hip fracture repair, and radiation therapy. The recent findings from the Canadian Institute for Health Information also show that in most cases, the Ontario rate is better than the national average. Libby spoke with Tracy Johnson, the director of the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and Bacchus Barua, the associate director of health policy studies at the Fraser Institute. It does seem like Ontario uh, in this particular report is doing better than most of the other provinces, um, you know, especially highlighting the numbers that you had. Um, but I think there are two things that, that we really need to need to take into consideration when we're talking about Ontario um, and, its, and its supposed success over here. Um, the first is when we look at the benchmarks actually used in this report, um, we need to recognize that these are remarkably long benchmarks. So when we're talking about <clears throat> the fact that uh, that this report says that uh, hip and knee replacements are at 84% and 79%, that's uh, a benchmark of six months um, for treatment. Um, and, and I think there are a lot of patients who would, you know, just at the outset over there, say that even six months uh, is a remarkably long time um, if that's what we consider success. What is your view of this? Are we in, in good shape? Are we in bad shape? Well, uh, let, let me let me go with two two different statistics. Um, you, you know the, these reports are, are remarkably important in terms of the way that we track our wait times. Um, but I don't think it's um, when when we when we start to make comparisons just year to year, uh, we sometimes lose track of what the overall trend has been. Um, so when we look at something like the Fraser Institute survey, which has been going on since 1993, uh, we get a better, better idea of of what these numbers mean. So this year. Um, Ontario had the second shortest wait time uh, in our report at 15.7 weeks between referral to treatment. But in 1993, Ontario's wait time was 9.1 weeks. Um, And that gives you a little bit of an idea of how things have actually changed over time. The other thing that I would say is is important for us to understand is that um, although we see these marginal improvements in some cases, in general, Canada has some of the longest wait times amongst developed countries with universal health care. So even when Ontario is doing better than other provinces within Canada, um, Canada itself, the benchmark that we're using for Ontario, uh, is a country that's lagging far behind countries like Germany, Switzerland, Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, Australia, countries with universal health care that spend about the same amount as we do, but remarkably shorter weights. 
celebrate uh, celebrate uh, the successes that we have and, and uh, individuals um, that have worked hard to to get them. Uh, but I think it's important that we don't lose sight of, of um, how far behind we are when we compare ourselves with other countries with universal health care. We are going to talk to one of the authors of the report. Tracy Johnson is the director of Healthy Systems Analysis and Emerging Issues with the Canadian Institute of Health Information. This is only one segment of the wait, so it is from when a decision is made to treat and the patient is considered ready to treat by a specialist till the time that they receive their treatment, the first uh, occurrence of that treatment. In this case, it's surgery. But these weight segments uh, or these procedures, the five that we look at, were ones that back in 2004 caused considerable challenges across the country. So they are indicators of whether health systems are able to meet the needs of their constituents or not. Tracy, what would you like to leave us with? So I would like to say that there is a lot of information out there on wait times now, more so than there was in 2012 and way more so when this was a huge problem back in 2004 and was identified. So talk to your practitioner about those wait lists. And if you can't wait as long as they're saying you have to wait, then ask about other alternatives. That was Tracy Johnson from the Canadian Institute for Health Information and Bacchus Barua with the Fraser Institute. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Jake in Toronto phoned to share his point of view in the ongoing SNC-Lavalin saga. It's no big deal. I don't see it's such a big deal. I think it's just being kept alive by the the conservative because they have no strong mandate for ordinary Canadians, and that's my observation of it. And I think it's um it's outrageous their behavior what they're doing because what they need to do is tell us what they're going to do for us as ordinary Canadians, so our lives can be better off than playing politics with all this situation. Get some mandate. Tell us what you're going to do for us and stop this politics about trying to bring the government down. Barb in Toronto phoned and made it crystal clear her thoughts about U.S. President Donald Trump. Whether he's guilty or not, uh, Trump, he has enough problems that he's caused himself that he's going to be caught on something. The man is pure evil. Tony and Keswick called about the money our federal government paid to the now free Omar Khadr. It just sickens me that our government, basically, this guy has ties to his family, right, to, to Al-Qaeda. And basically, our government probably helped him fund Al-Qaeda with that $10 million that we gave out. But only in Canada can you murder somebody, go to jail for a bit, and then come out a millionaire. I mean, I, that's beautiful. I mean, that's uh, I mean, maybe a lot more. That'll help tourism, I think, or help people uh, want to come over here a little more thinking, we go to Canada, kill somebody, and we get $10 million. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. Great calls, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jean in St. Catharines, who worked in long-term care but had to take an early retirement due to burnout and says she's pleased long-term care workers are finally speaking out about the violence they face while at work. I spent the last 13 years of my career working as an RPN on uh, night shift in long-term care. I took early retirement due to burnout. Um, I worked with CLAC Christ- uh, Union as a Christian Labour Association. 
Um, and the main thing we were fighting for, and I believe it, they're still fighting for more staff and more government spot in, inspections, not to tell them when they're coming. They, they, they tell them when they're going to come to, to inspect a place. And what happens usually, um, everything's neat and tidy, all the paperwork's in order, and it doesn't matter whether there's a patient in the bed or not. Some, you know, something's got to be done about that. It's no good throwing all this money, dollar after dollar, to these nursing homes because wherever there's a P for private, there will always be a P for profit. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. You've been listening to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Michelle Saunders. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. 